0: Well, once again, good morning. It's good to see you. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. That's, I believe, page 405 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. And there's pew Bibles there in the rows before you. We're going to look at Psalm 51 instead of Psalm 2 this morning. I've got Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the gateway to the Psalms. And Psalm 2, there's so much connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That I want to spend a little bit more legwork in my preparation for that. So we're going to look at Psalm 51, a well-known psalm this morning. As we look at some of the psalms throughout uh, the rest of the summer, we only have about, gosh, another few weeks before school starts back, but we'll probably go through the end of August and look at some more psalms, some well-known psalms, and some not-so-well-known psalms as well. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 51. I've already read the text to us this morning for our call to worship. So let me open us in prayer, and then we'll jump into the passage this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's true, and it's alive, and it's active. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit, our comforter and our counselor, who delights to apply the living word to our hearts and to our minds. Um, Lord, I pray this morning, would you transform us from the inside out? Would you change us, Lord? Would we delight more and more in Jesus, and delight less and less in ourselves? So I pray, would you make your word known to us, make it alive to us this morning? Make Jesus uh bigger and bigger and bigger in the eyes of our mind and heart today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen. Well, Psalm 51, you know, is a really uh, well-known psalm. Many of you have known this psalm. This is kind of the psalm, the prayer of repentance or the prayer of a contrite heart that David prays, right, after his encounter with Bathsheba. You know, one of the questions that I'm often presented with, uh, you know, as I counsel, as I pastor, is what do I do with fill in the blank? And then I A question that you've probably asked before. What do I do with fill in the blank? Maybe it's shame. What do I do with the shame that I'm struggling with? Or what do I do with the guilt that I'm struggling with? Or what do I do with with those who have injured me? Or what do I do with this forgiveness or forgiving this person? That's a question that we're presented with a lot of times in the Psalms. The Psalms really are like a mirror, aren't they? As we look at the Psalms, they reflect ultimately God and his character and his image and who he is and what he has for us as his sons and daughters, but also the Psalms act like a mirror that really reflect, reflect ourselves. Um, I teach, uh, we lead, a Press Landon and I'm a wife, and I lead a college Bible study on Friday nights. And this past Friday night, we got into what are some of the idols that we struggle with as believers in our lives. And it was kind of a painful discussion, painful in the sense of, of for me at least, because it was unearthing some stuff that I struggle with and deal with. Um, And Psalm 51, in a way, does that. It's kind of like a a big spade that the Lord uses, a big lever that the Lord uses to put under those rocks of your heart that are hidden, and He begins to pry up stuff. And and so Psalm 51 is a pry bar. It's a mirror that reflects the struggles that we have in our own life, but more so tell us about the good news of the gospel. So that's what we're going to see this morning in Psalm, as we read and we look at Psalm 51 together, that we cannot avoid our sin and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. I think that's what our main thing we're going to see this morning. So Psalm 51, as you know, is one of the, is the few psalms that pinpoint the actual historical origin of what's going on in the psalms. A lot of psalms start out with, with really no introduction. They just jump right in. But Psalm 51 gives us an introduction. Look at the beginning of Psalm 51. What does it say? It says, The heading of the psalm says, To the choir master a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And if you know the story, the background story of Psalm 51, it comes from 2nd Samuel. I'll just read you quickly 2nd Samuel 11 chapter 11, 2 through 5 it gives the background to what happened here in Psalm 51. The writer of Samuel says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He went walking on the roof of the, of the king's house, his own house that he saw and as he was on the roof he saw Uh, a woman bathing across from him, and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and the guy who came back, the messenger came back and said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. That really happened, right? That's that's a nightmare. That's a train wreck we saw. That's happened right here in Second Samuel, with David. That really happened, and then it gets worse. He tried to cover his sin, right, by bringing Bathsheba's husband Uriah back off the battlefield, and so that Uriah could be with his wife and and then cover it up. And 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 Uriah, or Bathsheba would think, and Uriah would think more so that it was his baby, right? But Uriah, the, the passage tells us in Samuel, that he was too noble to go. Uh, to be with his wife that night because his other guys were out on the battlefield fighting. And so so Uriah said, no, I'm not going to go and be with my wife. My guys are fighting. I can't do that. And so David then arranged, he takes the deception even deeper. He arranges to have Uriah killed, right, on the battlefield. He sends him to the front line, knows he's going to be killed because the battle raged so fiercely. And he does that so that he then can quickly marry Bathsheba and cover his sin, cover his tracks that way, Right. And then 2 Samuel chapter 11 ends with one of the most understated sentences in all of the Bible. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, after this tragedy unfolds before us, this train wreck unfolds before us, it ends with these words The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so God sends this prophet Nathan, right, to to David. uh, And uh, Nathan basically coerces David to pronounce his own condemnation. Nathan says, David, you are the man. And and then asks, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? What happens? David breaks down. He confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, astonishingly, get this. The Lord has also put away your sin. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord has put away your sin, David. He's put it away. And you shall not die. But nevertheless... Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will surely die. Notice what Nathan proclaims to David. He says, The Lord, David, he has put away your sin. In the Hebrew, that word put away literally means to bring over, to transfer over into another region that's far away from you. Put it in that context. All this stuff, this train wreck, this tragedy's happened because of David. He's ruined Bathsheba's life, killed her husband. He's committed heinous sins, right? And then Nathan says, the Lord has brought your son over onto himself, brought it over into the region of grace upon himself. Now, that's outrageous. Think about that. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba is raped, essentially. The baby is going to die. And then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, David. Just like that. He's committed adultery, right? He's ordered murder. He's lied. He's despised the word of the Lord. He's scorned God, and yet the Lord has put away his sin. That's what Second Samuel says, what Nathan says. What kind of righteous judge is God? You know, you don't just pass over rape and murder and lying and deceit like that, right? Righteous judges just don't do that, do they? It seems a little outrageous, doesn't it? That God would just make his sins disappear and pronounce him forgiven and innocent, right? Well, I don't know about you, but there is some resistance even to this day as I read that, as I read that pronouncement that the Lord has put away your sin, David. But you know, as I read God's word, take Paul, for instance, you go to the New Testament. Paul, for instance, explains how God could be both righteous, right? And the one who justifies him and, uh, makes clean murderers and rapists and liars and all sorts of sinners, all sinners across the map, right? Here's what Paul says in Romans 3. And this is one of the most important sentences in the Bible for understanding how even Jesus, how even Christ relates to the Psalms, how he even relates to Psalm 51 and really to the Old Testament in general. general. Notice what Paul says in Romans 3. He says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, the resistance that I feel when God seems to simply pass over David's sins, it would be an outrage, right, if God were just kind of merely sweeping David's sins under the rug, right? But he's not doing that. See, the amazing thing, here's what God's doing. This is called the redemptive historical view of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that all of Scripture is about the history of redemption, the redemptive historical view. So this is what's happening. God is seeing from the time of David down through the centuries all the way through to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy And God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. That's astounding. So God looks down from history and sees that ultimately Christ is going to be the propitiation, the forgiveness of our sins. So in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins. And then Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness, his righteousness. And God justly passes over David's sin. That's astounding. So you see, Psalm 1 essentially is this. It's, psalm 1 is teaching us, it's telling us how we should think and feel about the horrors of our own sin. John Piper said about this psalm, he said that Psalm 51 is about how to be crushed for our sin well. I like that. Psalm 51 is how teaches us how to be crushed for our sin well. And so we're going to quickly look. I wish we had time to to really unpack all of Psalm 51. There's so much here in Psalm 51. So quickly this morning, we're going to only really be able to break it down into four responses that David had to his sin. And the first one is this, is that David cries for mercy. Firstly, he turns to his only hope, the mercy and the love of God. What does he say in verse 1? Look at the text. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Look what he says. Three times he says, have mercy, God, according to your steadfast love, God, according to your abundant mercy. You remember This is what God had promised in Exodus 34. Do you remember this? When God said this in Exodus, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. And he is abounding in overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. You see, David knew that there were guilty folks who wouldn't be forgiven, right? And he also knew that there were guilty folks who by some mysterious work of redemption would not be counted as guilty, but instead would be counted as forgiven. And so Psalm 51 is a way of us laying hold of that mystery of mercy. That's what Psalm 51 is for us. See, we know the mystery of this redemption that David did. We know of more of this mystery of redemption than David did. Why is that so? Because we know Jesus. We know Christ, right? And we we lay hold of that mercy the same way David laid hold of that mercy. Because what is the first thing David does in Psalm 51? First thing he does, what does he do? The first thing he does is he turns helpless to the mercy and to the love of God. Today, for us, that means turning helpless to Christ. I really like the 12 step uh, anonymous recovery groups. And, you know, m- many of you are familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, they're 12 steps. And I don't know if you knew this, but 12 steps really originated out of biblical principles. They were started by, I think it's called the Oxford Three, who were were godly believers, uh, who started recovery out of really scriptural principles. And the first step of, really first two steps, of Alcoholics Anonymous you see come from Psalm 51. I don't know if you know this, but the first step of, of AA is this, is that you have to admit that you are helpless or powerless over alcohol or whatever the struggle is. You admit that you're helpless, powerless, and that your lives have become Unmanageable. Not that good. That's what David's doing here. My life has become completely unmanageable. I have derailed my life. It is a train wreck. And I am pleading for your help, God. I have nowhere else to turn. First step, admitting that you're powerless, you're helpless, your life's unmanageable. That's what David did in verse 1. Then, step 2 of A, see if it, this resonates. Step 2 says, that I've realized after I have admitted that I'm powerless, my life is unmanageable. Step two is then I've realized that there is a power greater than myself. Well, we know that that's Christ the Lord, Christ Jesus himself, that Christ Jesus himself is the only one who can restore me to sanity. That's what David's doing in Psalm 51. God, restore me to sanity. My life's unmanageable. I've, I've derailed everything. That's what he does in verse 2. Lord, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. What does he say in verse 7? Of Psalm fifty-one, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch that the priests would use to sprinkle blood on a house. They would do that. Leviticus tells us that they would do that if a house had disease, if someone in the house was diseased, that they would sprinkle the entire house with blood and a hyssop branch in order to declare that household clean. That's what David's saying. Sprinkle me with blood. I am not clean. I'm a mess. I need to be freed. I need to be washed white as snow. So he's crying out to God as his ultimate priest that God would forgive him and count him clean from his sin. makes me think of 1 John 7 when John says this. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, what does John say? We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves, and guess what? We deceive others too. You're not without sin, beloved. All of us here, including me, is a mess. We're not without sin. If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You can underline, circle, highlight all, all unrighteousness. And I love First John because it, it really tells us how do you have community among believers? How do you have community among each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, there's no genuine fellowship if you're believing that you have no sin. I like to call Wellspring the fellowship of the broken. This is a hospital for sinners, folks. What brings us together? Our common need for Jesus. The two steps of A is what brings us together we admitted our lives were unmanageable <laughs> and that we need something beside ourselves to rescue us. That's what unifies us. That's what brings us together as a community. So welcome to the community of the broken. You're here. It's what I've been telling our college kids on Friday nights. Cheer up. You're worse off than you can ever imagine. But the good news is Christ and the gospel is far more precious than you ever dare dream to believe. So we see that that Christ has purchased our forgiveness. David was even looking to that, that God has purchased his forgiveness. He's paid the full price, but that doesn't replace us. David even asked that God would cleanse, cleanse us, right? That doesn't replace the fact that we still need to ask God. Why is that? Because Christ's redemption, what he's done for us on the cross, is our basis for asking, okay? It's the reason we're confident that the answer will be yes if we ask christ has done for us okay third thing we see the third response is that he longs for restoration but first he confesses the seriousness of his sin so quickly david if you you look at the passage he in in at least five ways david confesses that his sin is extremely serious the first way is this he says in verse three and and see if this resonates with you i know this happens to me he says that he can't get the sin, the struggle, the, the transgression out of his mind. It's blazoned on his conscience. Look what he says in verse three: "For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's ever before him. The tape keeps playing, and he can't stop it. That ever happened to you? When you've blown it, tape keeps playing in your mind, keeps playing. The enemy is Satan himself, is the gra- greatest tape player in the world. He loves to push the play button and whisper." whisper to you that you can't be forgiven or that you've sinned too much. You're too far gone. It's not true, beloved. It's not true. In Christ, you can be forgiven. So he says, I know my transgressions. They're ever before me. Then he goes on and he says, the exceeding sinfulness of his his sin is only against God. Look in verse 4. Nathan had said to David that you have despised God and scorned his word. And so David says in verse 4, God, against you, against you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. You know, this doesn't mean that Bathsheba and the baby weren't hurt. They were grievously sinned against. They were injured. But it means that if you really take sin for what it really is, sin is not ultimately against others, though it is, and it, and it injures. We don't sin in a vacuum. When we sin, it affects everyone around us. But sin ultimately is against God. And that's what Psalm 51 is trying to help you see, is sin is exceedingly sinful because you are sinning against God. It's, it's the horror of sin that he's trying to help you see. Sin is an attack on God. It's a belittling of God. It's, David admits that in striking turns against you, God. You only have a sin. And then what does he do here? The other step he sees is that he, he vindicates God. He doesn't vindicate himself. There's no self-justification, no defense. David isn't making excuses for what he did. Look at verse 4. God, so that you may be justified in your words. God, that you are blameless in your judgment even of me. God is justified. God is blameless. David's saying, listen, God, if you cast me into hell, you would be innocent. God, if you were to cast me into hell, you would be righteous in doing so. You would be innocent. Folks, that is radical God-centered repentance. That, God, you are just in casting me and sending me to hell. I absolutely deserve that, and it's totally just for you to do that. You see, the normal Christian life is a life of repentance. Repentance and faith. It's kind of called the two-step walk of the Christian life. Repentance and faith. Not penance, feeling guilty about your sin and beating yourself into the ground and and playing that shame tape again and again. It's repentance that you turn from your sin and you turn back to the promises of the gospel that are never-ending. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's what David's doing here. It's repentance and faith. This is the way you and I as believers should feel, the way we should walk in the Christian life. That God should damn me is true, but the fact that I'm breathing right now is sheer mercy. The fact that anything good happens to you in your life is sheer mercy and grace. And that's why we are forgiven, because it's sheer mercy. It's because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. So David vindicates the righteousness of God and not himself. He doesn't make excuses of his sin. He owns up to his sin. He's a big boy. He owns up to it. And then he turns to God in his forgiveness. And then the last thing we see fourthly here, David intensifies his guilt by drawing attention to the heart issue. Look at verse 5. He calls it inborn corruption. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, some people use this inborn corruption to really kind of diminish their personal guilt, right? David completely does the opposite. You know, for him, he committed adultery, he murdered, he lied, he deceived, he was secretive about his, his sin. But he realizes those are expressions of something far worse. He is saying, by nature, I'm this way. And God, if you don't rescue me, I'm going to do more evil. <laughs> Folks, it's by sheer mercy that you're not as evil as you really could be. Do you realize that? That it's God's prohibitive grace in your life. You could be far worse That's scary, isn't it? You ever caught up in stuff you think sometimes? The other day I was telling our students this on Friday night. I was driving across town coming back here, and I wasn't thinking anything particularly bad, but just thinking about a random stuff, you know? I'm like, and I just, for some reason, God interrupted those thoughts. And I thought, God, why do I think these crazy things sometimes? You ever feel like you're going crazy? I do sometimes. You think, why am I thinking this kind of stuff? It's God's prohibitive grace that he even prohibits you from being as bad as you really could be. That's grace, folks. That's sheer mercy. David realized that. Lord, if it's not you who doesn't, if you don't rescue me, I'm going to be even more evil. So he admits that he sinned. He admits the the, uh, inborn corruption that he struggles with. But he doesn't make excuses. Well, you know, the reason I committed adultery is just because I'm a sinner. No, he owns up to his sin, but he also realizes that he's far worse than he really is. Then he admits that he sinned not just against the external law, but he admits that he sinned in the light of God's mercy. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret places. See, God has been his teacher. God has made him wise. David had done so many wise things, right? And then sin got the upper hand in his life. And for David, it made it all the worse. I've been blessed with so much knowledge. I've been blessed with so much wisdom, with leadership. Oh, how deep must be my depravity that it could sin against so much light. How could I turn away like this? And that leads us to David's fourth response, this testimony of repentance. So after finally turning helpless to God's mercy, then praying for forgiveness, praying for cleansing, confessing the depths of of his sin and the greatness of his corruption, David pleads for forgiveness, for, for more forgiveness. He pleads for renewal. He's passionately committed to being changed from the inside out by God. He pours out his heart for this change. See, the main point is this, that forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. Forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. Whether you've committed adultery or you're a murderer or a liar, whatever it is, you're committed. You set your face like flint to the gospel And you long to be changed and transformed from the inside out. He prays that his heart, right, his spirit would be renewed. It would be made right and firm. What does he pray in verse 10? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And the right spirit here is is an established and firm and unwavering spirit. He wants to be done with the insanity and the instability that he's just experienced. He prays for the joy of God's salvation. He prays for God's spirit, that he would joyful, joyful, be joyful and willing to follow God's word. That he would be generous with people rather than exploiting people. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me, God, with a willing spirit. Verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's asking for God to bring joy to the overflow of praise. This is what he's praying for. God, overcome everything in my life that keeps my heart dull, keeps my mouth shut when they ought to be praising. Make my joy irrepressible. And then he says that the upshot of all of this will be a life of effective evangelism. I love verse 13. You you hear David's confession. You see the depth of his sin. He owns up to that. And you might think, well, gosh, how in the world could God use him? And some of you here today might feel that way. I have sinned too much. There's no way God could use me. If, even if you know the things that I've done secretly, if you know the stuff I have thought secretly, I shouldn't even be sitting here today. God, there's much less ever, ever be involved in ministry. It's not true, folks. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return. In the New King James, I like how it translates that. Then I will teach transgressors transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Wait a minute. God's going to use David's huge screw-ups for his glory. What kind of God can do that? That's astounding. That God would use sin, someone's sin, someone's train wreck for his glory and even use that to bring people into his kingdom. That's grace, folks. That's the gospel. That's astounding. <laughs> you see, David's not just content with being forgiven, is he? He's not just been content to be made clean. He's not content just to have a right spirit. He's not content just to be joyful. He will not be content until he, he sees this, that his broken life serves as the healing of others' lives then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You know what the the fruit of repentance is? The fruit of this life of repentance and faith. You know what the fruit of repentance is? Evangelism. It's when you turn to the Lord, you own up to your sin big time, that you're a capital B, capital big, capital S sinner. You're a big sinner. You own up to that. You're a Big boy or girl, you don't try to minimize it. You don't try to make excuses. You just own up to it. And then you turn to God, who's your only hope, and you're forgiven. And then you go and tell somebody about that. And guess what? Usually that person who you tell is blown away because they're like, this is the first time somebody's been fully honest about their screw-ups. Holy cow, thank you for being honest. And it points them to Jesus. I've seen that time and time again as I've met with folks and I've shared my struggles Share my story. And people have gone, wait a minute. You mean you, you're you forgiven? You're restored? God loves you? Yeah. He loves you too. If you just turn to Him, your, your life's a life of insanity right now. Why don't you turn to the Lord Jesus? I struggle with insanity. I struggle with, with sin. I struggle with this, that, and the other. But I've met Jesus. And you know what? I continue to struggle with things. But I turn to Jesus again and again. And guess what? His will of grace... Is so deep and so wide. If you would just turn to him. See, the fruit of repentance is evangelism. We don't boast in our brokenness. We boast in the grace and the mercy that we've received. We we boast in the hope we have in Christ. And people are drawn to that, folks. We're called to be, God, guy named Jack Miller said this, we're called to be chief repenters. Not chief keep-it-togethers, people. We're called to be chief repenters. To repent again and again. Martin Luther said when he tacked t- the 95 theses to the wall, one, the first one was this, that the whole of Christian life is that of a life of repentance. You never outgrow your need for repentance. You never outgrow your need for needing Jesus. The fruit of repentance here is evangelism. We see that in Psalm 51. And this bring, brings us to the last thing I want us to see, verse 8. You know, David has discovered that under all of this, that God has crushed him. That my broken bones, he says, might rejoice. And in love, he says, this broken and contrite heart is a mark of all of God's children. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart O God. You will not despise. You know, the word contrite comes from the Latin word contritus. You know what that word contritus, contrite literally means? It means to be ground to pieces. Then I would have a heart broken and contrite, and ground to pieces. William Grinnell was a pastor in the 1600s. He said that God's wounds cure. Sins, kisses, kill. God's wounds cure. Sins, kisses, kill. Beloved, you're broken. Come to the Lord Jesus. Come to the wellspring of grace. Own up to your sin. Turn to Christ. God's wounds cure. The writer of Hebrews says that the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. Discipline's not a bad thing. We get the word discipleship from the word discipline. Really, all of the Christian life is a life of discipline, not self-discipline more so than God disciplining us, <laughs> loving us. Keeping us from being as evil as we possibly could be. And then coming back to us again and again through his word and showing us the majesty, the depth, the width, and the breadth of his grace and his love for us. You see, if we live good lives, if we're good, why do we need a savior? <laughs> if we feel like we're good and we have it together, then why would we need a savior? We don't. The older I get, the more and more I realize I'm not good. I'm more of a mess than I ever realized. But I have Christ and his riches. And he pours that out on me and on you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us Psalm 51, such an honest psalm. It really is a mirror that that brings up so much stuff in my own heart and mind about my own struggle, my own sin. But thank you, Lord, that it ends by pointing us to the gospel. It ends by pointing us to Christ. It ends by saying God gets the glory and not me. That God got the glory and not David. God got the glory because he was the one who exposed David's sin and and he's the one who forgave David's sin. And he's the one who even used David's sin uh, by drawing others to himself. Gosh, it's still bearing fruit today. In 2014, thousands of years later psalm 51 david's sin but more so your grace and your forgiveness in his life is still bearing fruit by drawing us to see our need for christ so god thank you that you get the glory in our salvation you get the glory in our salvation our sanctification and even in our glorification ultimately lord it's all of your grace that you might get the glory that we might find greater and deeper joy in you each day as we live and we lean more and more into you and into Christ so God thank you I pray today if there be anyone here who's convicted or maybe they're seeing things uh, and they're seeing their own hearts in a fresh new light today I pray that they wouldn't be discouraged I pray that they would take one look at their sins and quickly take ten looks at the cross of Christ that they would see your forgiveness and your love for them And that, Lord, they would see that there is nowhere else for them to go but other than the cross of Jesus. It's a a huge, huge, huge place. And it's big enough for them. Pray that they would turn to you and run there and find refuge and rest in Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise, praise you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's sing our closing.